Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm Shona Thompson. We speak with Green Party leader Mike Schreiner about the apparent protocol the Ford government has laid out for hospitals to deal with temporary ER closures instead of mapping out a protocol for that not to be necessary. There's a gap in the health care for kids with complex health issues when they age out of the pediatric system. What happens then? We'll hear from Stephanie Bjorgen, the founder and executive director of Red Roof Retreat in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And UFOs or UAPs, a congressional hearing is hoping to break open the truth about them. We'll hear from Chris Rutowski, a ufologist or is that uapologist? Not sure. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. ER closures. Seems they're happening all the time. There have been protests in recent weeks about the permanent closures in Mendham on June 1st. And in Fort Erie and Port Colborne, the urgent care is closed from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., uh, making people in the southern tier of Niagara go to either GNGH in um, Niagara Falls or St. Catherine's General Hospital, maybe well in general for treatment. Uh, and the Ottawa Citizen is reporting that since the start of the year, there have been 100 temporary ER closures in this province. It has become so commonplace, the Ontario Green Party says, the Ford government has a protocol for hospitals to follow when they're forced to make one of these closures. It's not to say that nothing is being done. Ontario is set to spend some more money to help the province's hospitals with the problems they face, as we hear from reporter Rob Westgate. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says some $44 million in additional funding will help hospitals deliver emergency care faster to the communities they serve. Now, the new funding is on top of a $90 million program rewarding ERs for installing innovative solutions to reduce wait times. The fund is also being expanded to allow smaller hospitals to qualify. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. But is that enough? Apparently not. We're still faced with a lot of those temporary closures. Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and he joins us now. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Shona. Happy to be on today. Um, just spitballing here, but shouldn't the protocol be to keep ERs open? Yeah, I think the protocol should be that we don't need a protocol on how to deal with emergency department closures. I mean, this is outrageous that the Ford government has so underinvested in, in hospitals and in many cases is actively pushing healthcare workers out of um, the healthcare system uh, with their wage suppression legislation that we're now seeing emergency department closures be so commonplace that we have to have a protocol to deal with it. I think the people of Ontario deserve better. They deserve a government that's going to make investments in our publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system and who are going to support the frontline nurses and healthcare workers that work so hard to take care of us. Well, you know, when you're talking about wage suppression, it seems there is some money in the provincial budget somewhere, because we also had a story this week that spending on agency nursing for hospitals has quadrupled. Those are the nurses that they have to pay extra for to bring in to fill in the gaps. Yeah, so basically under Doug Ford, we're paying more and getting less. Um, the attack on public health care and really the attack on nurses and suppressing their wages, that legislation, Bill 124, has been declared unconstitutional. But instead of paying nurses what they deserve, the Ford government is spending money on legal fees to appeal that decision. Meanwhile, so many nurses are saying, hey, if you're going to disrespect us, and force us to be overworked and underpaid, we're gonna leave the profession. 
some of them are being forced into working for these agencies because they get paid more. And at the end of the day, the quality of our health care is going down, which we're seeing in these temporary and in the case of Minden, permanent closures of emergency departments. And we're actually now paying more for agency nurses and getting less service. It's complete fiscal mismanagement. And we're paying the price by um, not having access to the health care that we deserve. Well, yeah, when you when you hear stats like they're paying four times as much for agency nurses instead of hunkering down and, and coming up with a fair and reasonable contract for RNs and RPNs in this province, it seems like they're spending money in the wrong way. <laughs> they're definitely spending money in the wrong way. I mean, when you spend more to get less service, that's just gross fiscal mismanagement. Now, the owners of these private healthcare agencies, yeah, they're laughing, but the people of Ontario are paying the price for this in um, less access to healthcare services. And quite frankly, the people on the front lines, the nurses, doctors, technicians, uh, the folks who you know work in our hospitals, especially in our emergency departments, are paying the price as well. They're overworked, they're underpaid, uh, they're stressed out, they're being asked to do more with less. And then the people, those of us who need to access healthcare services are paying the price because we just don't have the staffing in our emergency departments that are needed to care for people. Well, you know, we're speaking with uh, Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, by the way, and we're talking about uh, apparently a protocol that the Ford government has put out uh, for hospital ERs to deal with their shutdowns instead of funding them to make sure they don't have to. But we were just talking about the amount of money that the province is spending on agency nursing. Um, To be fair, Mike, Health Minister Sylvia Jones said the amount being spent on agency nurses is declining. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, here's here's the reality. We are spending an unprecedented high amount of money on agency nurses. We're having unprecedented levels of temporary and in some cases like Minden, permanent closures of emergency departments. In those emergency departments that are open, wait times are through the roof. The Ford government knew about this. We dealt with this last summer. And instead of having a plan to make sure we address the health human resource crisis, the four governments wasting additional tax dollars, appealing a court decision um, that struck down their wage suppression legislation, which is leading to the exodus of people leaving the public health care system. So all of this was known, it was predicted, And now we, the people of Ontario, are paying the price for both the fiscal mismanagement of our healthcare system and the simple mismanagement of dealing with the health human resource crisis that our healthcare system is facing right now. And that's what's leading to these temporary and permanent closures of emergency departments. Well, the Ford government recently announced that there's going to be some new hospital construction in various parts of the province. Um, and the funding model for that is a, is a P3, that's a public-private partnership. Um, uh, but uh, a part of that, anyway, is uh, the, uh, the private sector is going to be spending the money for the design and build, but it also will get long-term contracts for maintenance. Uh, I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, you know what? The creeping and sometimes accelerating privatization 
of our healthcare system that the Ford government is pursuing means we're going to pay more for less services. I mean, we've seen other provinces who have gone, particularly BC and Quebec, who have gone down this privatization road, uh, and they've realized that it's actually, um, they're paying more for less care, and they're actually reversing um, that those decisions. So why the Ford government wants to go down this road of privatizing healthcare makes absolutely no sense to me. It just means we're going to pay more for less. You know what? Let's just have a government that's actually going to invest in our healthcare services. The most fiscally responsible way of doing that is investing in publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare. That's been shown, and you know when you compare uh, our ourselves to other provinces. And so you know what? I'm I'm worried that this situation is only going to get worse uh, if the Ford government isn't going to invest in the people, the frontline healthcare workers who deliver services. Well, you know, one of the things that crosses my mind about this when I'm thinking about the overnight closures of urgent care in Fort Erie and Port Colborne and the outright closure of an ER in in Minden, these are areas where there could be some really serious um, critical issues happening. And by that, I mean, you know, people who are in accidents or are in uh, trouble when they're out on Lake Erie, uh, people who are away on vacation, and you wind up losing so much time if you're going to the wrong place, but you don't always know in advance whether or not that ER is going to be open or not. Yeah, exactly. Imagine, Shona, you're, you know, have some emergency, you have a loved one who's in distress, and you rush to hospital, and you get there, and the emergency department is closed. And then you're rushing off to another uh, hospital that has one that's open. Like these are life and death situations. These are situations where, you know, people are oftentimes, you know, in severe pain. Uh, To me, it's just outrageous that it's come to this, especially when we knew that it was going to happen, but the Ford government failed to take the necessary steps. And not only that, they're actually spending our tax dollars making it worse by appealing this wage suppression legislation that is pushing nurses out of our public health care system. You know, when you take a look at the totality of all of this and, and everything that we've discussed here this morning, what do you think this says about the long game that's being played here? Well, if the Ford government's going to continue to go down this privatization road, uh, you're going to see a deterioration in the quality of our healthcare system. We've seen that happen in other provinces. The government is sitting on a significant surplus of billions of dollars. Why not invest that in our healthcare system to deliver the services people need right now? I mean, I think of um, you know how many families who've you know reached out to my office um, who you know are struggling to access basic healthcare. Uh, because of the for government's underinvestment in the healthcare system, and and so you know I I'm worried that it's only going to get worse because the for government seems to be focused on a privatization agenda instead of a patient-centered care agenda. And with the billions of dollars, as you point out, uh, that should be available for this, you have to wonder what's really going on. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it seems to be driven by ideology around a belief that, you know, privatizing public services is the best way to go, rather than a belief of, hey, let's just care for each other. 
I mean, I think one of the things that makes Canada such a great place to live is that we care for each other. And one of the ways we care for each other is that we make investments in publicly funded, publicly delivered health care. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to see the Ford government dismantling that and people, just average folks like you and me, uh, are paying the price for that through, um, you know, less access to quality health care. And the people who are delivering that care are the ones bearing so much of the burden of it. I can't tell you how many nurses and other frontline health care providers who are just doing heroic work, struggling to provide the care that they are dedicated to providing in incredibly difficult working conditions. Uh, and, 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 you know, and then at the end of the day, those of us who need access to healthcare services, you know, we pay the price because in some cases, those services are not there. Exactly. Mike, thanks for your time. It's always interesting to speak with you. Hey, Shona, anytime. Happy to be on. Okay. Uh, Mike Schreiner is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. He's also the MPP for Guelph, so kind of a local guy. Uh, (laughs) And I wanted to thank Mike for his time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. NDP MPP for Hamilton Mountain Monique Taylor held a news conference to highlight a gap in our health care system. What to do for special needs kids when they age out of the pediatric system. Uh, many described it as falling off a cliff, um, being um, uh, ejected from a system, not knowing where they're going to go next. Uh, the transition is supposed to start at the age of 16, uh, but really uh, many families uh, voice that that doesn't really happen. That's, you know, it's one thing to announce funding for a program for children with special needs, including those with complex issues. But what happens to those children when they turn into adults? The needs are the same the day after they turn 18. It's a situation that impacts so many families in Ontario. And someone who knows about this issue firsthand is Stephanie Bjorgen. She's executive director and founder of the Red Roof Retreat in Niagara-on-the-Lake. It offers respite care and recreational programs for special needs children and their family. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. No problem, Shona. Nice to hear your voice. (laughs) Nice to hear yours as well. Um, (laughs) I I wanted to talk uh, specifically about Red Roof Retreat in this situation because it came out of a need that you and your family had. There was a problem and, and you solved it. It's true. It's uh, not a problem you want to be going through, but it was a problem where there was no societal solution. And, um, you know, you know, your hand get pushed and you, you know, for your own mental health and emotional survival, you've just got to go and create a solution. So I was very lucky to be in the community I was in, given the situation I was in. And uh, that was sort of the inception of Red Roof was helping out my son and our family. Yeah, your son, uh, Garrett, how old is he now? He's going to be 30 in, in September, which is really weird for me to say. So you've gone through this kind of a situation where you have uh, a son with some very special and complex needs, um, and it's one thing to have supports in the early years, but up until the age of 18, and then what do you do after that? Well, and you know, that was the looming question. And, you know, when you're in that situation as a child, with your child, it's so hard to look that far ahead, but you have to. Um, and it's not that there weren't problems when he was a child. Um, you know, there's such a systemic and societal and political issue with, with dealing with people with special needs, because if you're not in it, you're not aware of it. You think you are, but you're not. And so, you know, 
while we struggled raising him as a child, you know, getting the supports and the financial needs met, um, it was looming about him turning 18. I was lucky enough to work in the school system and know that I had to start um, working on that transition when he was 16. But it does tend to fall down in the school system because not all parents are aware of that. Well, you know, as uh, we heard in that clip from Nanique Taylor, some parents describe it as falling off a cliff. Right. And, you know, that statement isn't really a news flash. I mean, I've been witnessing this for 30 years. Um, the government is facing just too many pressing issues, and we're one of them. Um, I think what's changing over the years is, you know, due to medical breakthroughs, children with complex needs are living longer lives. And then there's also young people with autism who are on the severe end of the spectrum who I would still consider needing complex care as well. So the numbers are increasing, but the funding isn't. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I've been watching this for 30 years, starting with the Harris government, and it, it, no government is able to find a solution to this that makes families happy. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hate to be cynical, but I'm so good at it. Um, that, <laughs> As am I. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's one thing for politicians to be able to make funding announcements and take a, a picture with uh, special needs kids. And isn't that great? And it looks wonderful on an election brochure. You know, it's not the same kind of thing when it's uh, when it's an adult who has special needs. Exactly. And, you know, it's not even just the individual special needs that they're really not posing with their pictures anymore because they're not as cute, you know. Um, but it's they're, they're missing the whole family. Like, you know, when, when, when children transition to adults and they have, you know, abilities to access passport funding, um, I don't know how well that's doled out because, you know, they look at many factors. I don't think they're looking close enough. So sometimes I see a disparity where, um, someone who I feel would benefit from being more out in the community is getting a lot of funding, whereas someone with severe complex needs who can barely leave the house is getting not much more. So there's a, there's an issue with that. And even ODSP funding, um, you know, when families are saying, okay, I, I don't think I can handle um, having this young adult with complex care in my house anymore, you look at your ODSP that you receive, and there's $564 allocated to out-of-the-home funding. I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone can find rent for 564 right? So they're throwing money at it, but it isn't enough to really solve the major issues, which is, you know, your young person's home, and they need 24-hour care. So... Yeah. Um, one of the other aspects, and, and you touched on it earlier, um, you knew that Garrett, because of your experience, you knew that Garrett was going to have to be transitioned away from pediatric care, and you started that process when he was about 16. Um, it, when you've got a, a child with complex special needs, that is a 24-hour-a-day issue, um, as you know all too well. You know, how do you have the time and and be able to do the research so you can, you know, channel your child into the appropriate care. Well, as I always say, whatever government's in power, and I love this phrase, they bank on us because we're too tired, we're too burnt out, we have other children, we have jobs, we have marriages, all those other things. And so, you know, a lot of us aren't able to advocate or do the deeper research or, or really, you know, fit that into their lives. And, um, so because of that, families and their loved ones fall through the cracks because they don't know there's ways to access money. And, you know, for me, I was hitting a major crisis. My son was going to be coming home 24-7. He was on a wait list that was 12 to 18 years. 
I had a job. I had kids in school. You know, I was literally facing, do I quit my job or do I advocate, um, you know, to have people come into my home? And that took years. But that isn't really the solution either because, you know, you get to an age where you don't really want all these extra staff in your house. There's no privacy. There's no dignity in your life with that, right? And, you know, and then you play it out long term and you look about becoming an elder yourself, right? And you hit a crisis and then what do you do? So, yeah, yeah you have to start ahead of time and you got to dig your heels in. And, you know, you almost have to, like for us, I had to hit a crisis and drop everything and say, I'm, I'm going to make a change here. And we were fortunate enough to come up with a model of care for him. It isn't the greatest, but it's, it's a lot better than what I expected of being on a wait list. Something you said that I do want to highlight, the wait list you were facing was 12 to 18 years. Correct. And you can't put them on there till they're um, an adult. And so, you know, I had a teaching career. Was I supposed to just walk away from that and wait till he got care in a group home? If even a group home was appropriate for him. Um, and the other option that they said to us, well, we could put him on a list for long-term care, except my son was 18, not a senior citizen. Yeah. And even though his body appeared very complex, his brain is just as well-functioning as ours, so it would have been a completely inappropriate placement. I only have 30 seconds left, unfortunately. But Stephanie, if somebody wants more information about Red Roof Retreat, or if they're moved and they want to help support it, how can that be done? They can just find us on our website and we're on Facebook and follow along. You'll learn lots and you'll see how we can turn something bad into something good. Well, Stephanie, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, Shona. Stephanie Bjorgen is the executive director and founder of Red Roof Retreat. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is another congressional hearing set for today to talk about UAPs. That's the rebrand of UFOs. And it's not the first time there's been this kind of an investigation. We work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. We'll take it from here. Who the hell are you? INS Division 6. There is no Division 6. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. We're no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. Okay, it's not the men in black. But, you know, there was Project Blue Book. And in the 90s, there was a report out that claimed that what you were seeing was really just a weather balloon. Uh Uh-huh. As we hear from Jim Ryan, another congressional hearing is coming up today. The Navy pilots who captured this video off the coast of Florida in 2015 couldn't explain it. In fact, no one has offered a clear explanation for that sighting and hundreds like it dating back decades. This is ridiculous, folks. Republican Tim Burchett of Tennessee heads the House Oversight Committee, which will ask military witnesses and investigators what the Pentagon knows about unidentified anomalous phenomena. And we're going to get to the bottom of it, dadgummit, whatever the truth may be. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Well, here to talk a little bit more about all of this is Chris Rutkowski. He's a science writer and ufologist, but Chris, are we going to have to change that title to uapologist? <laughs> well, I hope not. I, You know, in Canada, we still use the uh, term UFO because uh, Transport Canada still has a classification of UFO rather than UAP for pilots reporting UFOs. So what do you think this congressional hearing is going to do? How is it going to be different than, well, everything else we've heard so far? Well, it actually just finished just a few minutes ago. 
uh, been watching it, uh, uh, streaming through the House uh, Oversight Committee's website. Um, it, it is interesting that, uh, you know, the, some of the material that we've heard, in fact, most of what we've heard uh, from these witnesses, uh, uh, two pilots and a, uh, and a person with a former intelligence uh, agency, uh, you know, we've heard those stories before that uh, UFOs exist, that the government probably has um, you know, crashed bits of them or maybe, in fact, uh, intact ones. Uh, you know, we've heard these stories before, but this is the first time that it's been read into uh, the proceedings of a, a subcommittee of the Congress. So this is actually going a little more public, going more, uh, you know, more formal uh, rather than just the hearsay. Well, it's over already? Yeah, it was just an hour, scheduled to be an hour. But, you know, I'm sure that there'll be further discussion. In fact, this was told just that it's going to be a, uh, the, the beginning of a series of, uh, of hearings. So, uh, you know, there will be other ones, no question. <laughs> well, I mean, this was supposed to be, we're going to get the answers. The public has the right to know. But there's nothing new? Well, well I would say nothing really new. I mean, these as, as I say, these are people, one of the three actually described uh, what he as a pilot was uh, seeing back a number of years ago. He's the fellow associated with one of these videos that everybody probably has seen uh, and he said this was not our our technology us meaning the united states uh, but uh, he, he says this was definitely something that was uh, beyond our technology here and that he expressed the point of view that if you know we don't know what was you know powering this or how it flew then we probably should because you know anyone who has this technology basically you know controls the board well, you know, we've also been hearing for a long time, and, and I know that you've heard this argument, too, you know, with everybody having a cell phone with, you know, a pretty sharp reception, how come there hasn't been a really good video that we can actually see what these things are? You know, that's a really good question. Like you say, everybody seems to have a cell phone camera. The trouble is that a lot of what's being seen uh, can't be really caught or captured with a cell phone camera because cell phone cameras are really good for taking pictures of well let's say cats uh, <laughs> but uh taking pictures on in video of distant objects moving in the sky you know not so good um in fact just just recently uh, have the technology been good enough to capture things like constellations of stars and even that these are just tiny points of light in the sky that really don't tell us much so you know, cell phone cameras and videos just don't really cut it. Well, you know, there was a lot of hype. Um, news stories for about the last week focused on this congressional hearing that would be happening today. And and maybe there was a lot of um, wishful thinking that there would be actually some solid confirmation, some proof. There have been rumors that there are a number of craft that the U.S. government uh, has a hold of always centered around Area uh, mm -hmm. 51. But, you know, there's also the um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that there's been a lot of talk about as well. Um, maybe there was too much hype on this and expectations were too high that we were finally going to get the answer? Well, there's no question of that. In fact, one of the questions put directly uh, by one of the panel members to the uh, one of the whistleblowers was, uh, you know, does the uh, uh us have the uh you know the the uap the ufos um and uh, he said yes and so he was asked the follow uh, follow up question where and he said basically can't tell you that sorry classified so <laughs> you know there we're still a little bit stymied here that uh, 
Not everything can be releasable in a public forum, and that's to be expected because certainly some of what is being reported as a as a UFO or UAP uh, is uh, obtained through classified material. Just imagine if a pilot, for example, flying a mission over Ukraine, uh, you know, sees a UFO. Uh, simply by the nature of where and when and how that that UFO was observed, that's all classified, and we probably will never. Uh, hear about that in, in an official forum. So there's all sorts of reasons why we, we shouldn't be able to hear some of this. But, the, you know, these are the questions that we want to know. So there has to be a compromise somewhere. In fact, at one point during the hearing this morning, uh, one of the panel members just said, you know, you know, Congress has to go down to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, and maybe even Area 51 in, in Nevada as well. Uh, just go down there and try and investigate yourself and let, let's see if they can keep them out. Well, one of the things that people had always said is that, you know, there's going to be mass panic if we find out that there really are aliens and that we've been visited. But I think we're all kind of used to the idea now. Well, yeah, you know, uh, even the Marvel Universe shows us that aliens (laughs) have come to Earth many times. Um, But, uh, you know, the problem with mass panic is even during, uh, you know, the, the 1930s when War of the Worlds was aired, there really wasn't mass panic, despite some of the uh, the hoopla. Uh, people were a little cu- you know, confused and curious as to what was going on. However, I will note that at this this hearing today, there was a mob. There, they had more people lined up waiting to get into to personally take in this hearing than they've ever had in any other committee. Uh, they were saying that it's astonishing the number of people who wanted to be there to witness and to hear what was being said, and. And that shows the intense uh, number of people who are, are fascinated by this particular. Chris, have we lost you? Subject. So uh, I, it's, I wouldn't say panic, but there's certainly no interest. Chris, we're, we're apparently public. we're having a, a bit of a technical issue. Uh, you keep cutting out, and I'm I'm just wondering hello, if hello? that if that might be you know oh. them stopping you from getting your word out. Okay, we're going to take a a quick little break. Uh, You are listening to 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Uh, We've been speaking with Chris Rutkowski, who's a science writer and a ufologist. Uh, But apparently... um well, there's, there's a bit of a problem uh, with our connection with Chris and trying to get a hold of him um, because uh, it, it dropped out. I, I don't know that it's UFOs that are causing the problem, or maybe it's the government that doesn't want people to know what's going on. Uh, Chris, is uh, we, we got a reconnection with him. Thanks so much, Chris. Sorry about that. No problem. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I hope you... Oh, we're still having... Uh, can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, um, so we were talking about uh, this whole situation, and it reminds me of uh, when there was some movement in Canada because uh, a cabinet minister, Paul Hellyer, was being very vocal about what he had seen and uh, and what information and documentation there might be in this country. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in many ways, Canada is actually ahead of the United States. Um, and the reason I say that, a number of issues that were raised today in the hearing. Uh, one question that was posed was, you know, is there any reason why uh, information about UAP or UFOs from the past 15 to 20 years shouldn't be made public? And uh, uh, even though it was acknowledged that certainly some stuff could be continued to remain confidential or classified because of the way the material was obtained, in general, uh, they said, no, we should be able to know about what cases were 
uh, were being reported. And in Canada, of course, I've had the privilege of uh, having access to uh, UFO reports from uh, military sources, from Transport Canada, from pilots, uh, right to the present day. Uh, so we actually have access to a lot of this stuff that the American public doesn't have access to. Uh, they also mentioned that uh, that right now, you know, commercial pilots uh, don't have any way of reporting UFOs to you know any any agency. Well, here in Canada, Transport Canada itself has a classification of uh, of UFO that pilots regularly have been reporting to. And as a matter of fact, we just had a number of UFO reports from pilots just over the past uh, month or so. So, you know, Canada actually has this in place already. So perhaps the Americans should be paying more attention to what's happening north of the border. Well, Chris, um, you were saying that uh, there may be some follow-up to this congressional hearing. Uh, did they mention anything about next steps when we might hear more? Well, there there will be a report from NASA uh, coming up within the next month, uh, maybe even sooner than that, maybe even a few weeks from now, uh, of its uh, UAP investigations. Uh, and there certainly will be additional hearings coming up uh, as, uh, as a subset of this, because this is really just the first uh, attempt to make public you know, what's going on in the United States. And the public pressure itself is going to demand that uh, we hear more about it. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we were able to reconnect. Okay, thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.